0: You know our friends at Wicking Vicar for their comfortable clerical shirts and their wooden Advent wreath playset. They're back with a new gift, and this time it's for the Lutheran ladies. Introducing their beautiful necklace featuring 14-karat gold-filled charms of the cross and Luther seal, a simple and feminine way to express your faith every day. This necklace arrives in a gift box and is perfect for confirmation, graduation, Mother's Day, or First Communion. Visit wickingvicar.com to find this necklace and other gifts. That's W-I-C-K-I-N-G-V-I-C-A-R.com. Listening
1: to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree, and I'm Rachel. Today is a story time with Sarah day. Yes. And this podcast is dropping on Good Friday, so I probably should be in like a more somber mood. But today I thought it would be a perfect time to jump into the Triduum, and this is not like a new gum flavor or something, or I don't know, <laughs> 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 thing
2: on much the internet. In
3: <laughs> I'll be honest. I always thought it was pronounced "tridoom," and I doom. had more of a like a giant like trident weapon sort of thing in mind. Uh,
1: trident uh, of doom. It's an tr- abbreviation, obviously. Yeah. Oh, we should make a logo for this. It <laughs> might be really <laughs> irreverent. Um.
2: So it'll just be a mnemonic. Tr- tr- that's all. We'll, we'll never forget. That's
1: true. Yeah. This is part of the liturgical year. I will explain more in just a second. You can read all about this either on Wikipedia, which has a surprisingly well-written section on the Triduum, which is Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. Also, the fancy new Lutheran service book, Companion to the Services, is finally out. Actually, it was out a little while ago. I finally got a copy, though, (laughs) like last week at my desk. It's a KFUO radio copy. This is a very exciting thing. And so there's like, I don't know, 50 pages on this, and half of that is just Easter Vigil. So if you're interested in learning more about our services or our liturgical year, you're going to want to buy this additional book. So you can have a Lutheran service book companion to the hymns and also a Lutheran service book companion to the services. It's a wonderful pairing of books. Fantastic. So Sarah, I have to, before we get
2: going, I have to give you kudos to recording this episode on this heavy, important topic when I can tell you're not feeling well. And also, it's spring forward day. And my brain hasn't been working for like <laughs> the last 48 hours. So uh-huh. I just want to thank you for doing this and being you,
1: even under these circumstances. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I have my hoodie hoodie hood pulled up over my headphones right now. But <laughs> I love the Triduum. It's my favorite time in the church year, So I'm very excited about this and to share all of my pages of notes with you. <laughs> So there is so much history to these three days of the church year. This is like the feast of feasts, festival of festivals in the church year. The amount of information on the internet is ridiculous. (laughs) So I will only be scratching the surface today. There's so much more I wanted to tell you, but it would literally be like a five-hour podcast and that would still just be scratching the surface. Next time. So next time. Yes. This is just, maybe we'll do a series on this and like, I don't start. know. But it
3: sounds to me like we have seven years of content.
1: Uh, <laughs> probably. So seriously, like go read some of this, especially the history stuff in the Western church. The Roman Catholic rites have a lot more than I'm going to be able to tell you. I'm going to focus a lot more on the history as it pertains to us in the Lutheran church and our practices on their own. Or you can like send an email to Chaplain Sean Denzer, who is the LCMS Director of Worship. I sat in his office for like 45 minutes while he pulled books off of his shelf of like the old Latin rites for these services and was just like reading through them in English, like translating and reading through them in English. It was amazing. We were nerding out together. So he also is a wealth of information for this as well. Thank you, Sean, for all of your help in researching this episode too. So... The Triduum is this historic name for the series of days leading up to Easter. So, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. Historically, these services actually happened the evening before. So, the evening of Wednesday through the evening of Saturday. Very interesting thing. Triduum just literally mean three days? It literally means three days. Okay. Good. So, it it comes from the Latin. Yeah. Latin roots tri meaning three and dies meaning days. So, yes, literally three days. Not Nothing complicated there. Doom trident, not mm. not the trident of doom. No, okay. although that sounds like a Marvel movie. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but this is even better, better, even better, better. This is real stuff, guys. Real stuff. Mm-hmm. This is considered the absolute holiest of holiest times in the Roman and Orthodox churches, and our Lutheran churches as well. Frankly, with Pascha, Easter being the great feast of all feasts, it's the culmination of Holy Week. So this is when we commemorate Jesus' passion, crucifixion, and resurrection. The services during these days are basically considered one long service. So if you've gone to services on any of these three days, you'll notice that Maundy Thursday has an invocation, but no benediction at the end. And your Good Friday services don't have an invocation or a benediction. They just jump right in, and at the end, you just kind of leave in silence. And then Easter Vigil service doesn't have an invocation, but it does have a benediction at the end. So that's so it kind of starts at the beginning of the Monday Thursday service and ends at the end of the Easter Vigil service. And I love that that gives us a sense of prayerful meditation for all three of these days. Like once you start your Monday Thursday service, there's almost like this expectation that your time over the next 3 days is going to be spent thinking about Christ's passion during this time because the service doesn't end, you just kind of go in and out of church during these days. Mm. That's beautiful. So, and also tiring, but most beautiful. <laughs> yes, especially if you're in the choir <laughs> or a church worker of any kind. <laughs> True. It's a long haul, but a good long haul. So we start this with Monday Thursday. And historically, this day had several different names, all of them specifically pointing to the Eucharist. The name Monday Thursday comes from the Latin mandatum, which means commandment or mandate. So that refers to the gospel reading in John. Thirteen that we read on this day when Jesus talks about this new commandment that he gives to love each other as he has loved us, and the name Monday Thursday has been in use since the seventh century. It was other names before then. There's also a German name called Gründonnerstag, and of course German has to have a different name, which means Green Thursday, which doesn't make sense in my head until you hear their explanation for it. It's this practice of the penitents who were expelled on Ash Wednesday and they become reconciled on Holy Thursday. So in the German tradition, if they were doing Gründonnerstag, the pyramids and the vestments were green, and green branches were given to these penitents because the branches that had lost their life because they didn't have any life-giving water or roots at the beginning of Lent on Ash Wednesday were restored to life, and they grow as green branches. So they were given these green branches, and, and everything was green. We don't obviously really do that in our churches. I don't think I've ever seen green so, pyramids. are we
2: referring to all penitents who are going through Lent, or does this—I'm I'm curious now—does this refer only to those worst of the penitents who were, like, kicked out of church to go, like, reform themselves during Lent and have proven that it they are— doesn't the-
3: sound Lutheran. I just it don't doesn't. understand what's going on Is this, on like, either? from Catholic Germany?
1: Well, yeah. I don't think this is Lutheran okay, practice. Okay, okay, okay. I think say? this is earlier than that. Somebody can correct me slash go read the Wikipedia page. It's probably in there. <laughs> I, my, my understanding is that these penitent groups of people were not everybody, but like a specific group of penitential people. Hmm. I don't exactly know Usually why the they were the penitent. Sounds is a really <laughs> loud keyboard. Rachel's gonna look this up for y'all. Okay, because I'm really fact-check
2: me on the spot. Like it's for everybody or just the like super sinners. My guess is that super sinners. Translate page from German. Yes, please. (laughs) Okay, you can move on. I'll let you know when I have an answer. Okay, good.
1: (laughs) So you might notice in our modern lectionary, maybe you don't. I don't know. This is a very small detail. It's called Holy Thursday with the Monday in parentheses, Mm -hmm. and this is just to keep it consistent with the rest of the week being Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday. Holy Wednesday, so they just keep calling it Holy Thursday. Good Friday is called Good Friday, and then Saturday is Holy Saturday. So you can kind of do either one. Mm -hmm. In Jerusalem, back in the day, way back in the day, there's this practice of worshipers retracing Jesus' steps at the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane. And in some services, there might be the rite of washing of feet because Jesus washed his disciples' feet during the Last Supper. This is really common in historic rites. I'm not sure how common it is in Lutheran churches today. I know some people still do this during Monday Thursday services. It's really common in Roman Catholic churches. In England, the washing was performed by the king and queen until Queen Victoria's time when it was replaced with the crown giving generous contributions to the poor, which is a very interesting swapping of things. Like, we don't want to wash your feet, but we'll give you a lot of money instead. I don't know. In the historic Western church, the reconciliation of the penitents the consecration of holy oils and the commemoration of the institution of the Eucharist were the most commonly associated masses for Holy Thursday. So that would have been in the Catholic Church, not Lutherans, because Lutherans wouldn't have existed yet. In the Middle Ages, people who were cast out on Ash Wednesday for a season of penance during Lent were reconciled on Wednesday evening, and they would have this public confession and absolution and then receive the supper with the rest of the congregation. So that's probably is what relates to the Tag that Rachel is still looking up. Okay.
2: All right. I have an answer, actually. Good hey. timing. So it comes from the 13th century, so definitely before the Reformation. And it does seem to apply to everybody. I mean, everybody oh. in the church who was penitent on Ash Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm just kidding. Okay. So Ken has actually used this metaphor in his sermon several times, the idea of grafting a dead piece, a seemingly dead piece of wood into a living... Living branch and, oh. it, you know, being connected to the root and having new life in it. And so the yeah. idea is that all of the spiritual discipline and devotion that has happened in Lent will connect you ever closer to, you know, the vine that is Christ. And on Monday, Thursday, you can just rejoice in the growth that has happened. I think it's actually kind of cool. Hmm. Hey, that makes sense. Yeah. And not quite so un Lutheran as like picking out the super centers and being like, you guys can come back when you're, <laughs> when you're done punishing yourselves. Okay, so not the super sinners.
1: Well, I mean, we're all, we that. are all
2: super sinners. Well, that's, that's true.
1: <laughs> so then this foot washing would happen on Thursday afternoon, and then the consecration of oil would happen by the bishop for use throughout the year for baptism, confirmation, and other rites. And a very interesting practice was happening by the early Middle Ages, where a special host or wafer was consecrated and reserved for use during the Good Friday Mass of the Pre-Sanctified. Obviously not a Lutheran practice. It would be escorted in a procession to the side altar called the Altar of Repose. And then the last Thursday service would end as we still do it with the stripping of the altar. So the stripping of the altar is a tradition that goes way, way back in time. And did you know that Lutherans were also condemned on Holy Thursday in the <laughs> Catholic Church? <laughs> so after the 1400s, the papal bull in Coena Domini, which means on the supper of the Lord, was read, and it condemned all heretics, which included the Hussites, the Wycliffeites, Lutherans, Zwinglians, Calvinists, Huguenots, Anabaptists, anti-Trinitarians, and all apostates in general. And Luther thought this, Martin Luther thought this was super ironic since this is like a day for humble service and they're going around blasting the heretics. So we were condemned at that point. I'm not sure that that's still a thing. I'm guessing maybe not. (laughs) Throughout this service on Monday, Thursday, we usually hear and experience four things. So we've got the most important thing being the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then also this really strong theme of repentance and forgiveness, humble service among each other. And then, of course, Christ's humiliation as he approaches his crucifixion and the prayers, the hymns, the readings and all the actions that we see in the service really highlight these things. I
2: think that's actually an appropriate time to be condemned because Monday Thursday was the day in which Christ was rejected and condemned yeah. and judged. And so well, I, feel, in, I enough, feel honored that we would be numbered are considered worthy of such similar action.
1: <laughs> Just that's that's so. There are a few very different things that we experience in this service that set it apart from other services during the church year. One of them is the service of corporate confession and absolution at the beginning. So if you do the service as, it, as it's appointed in the altar book, there's this extended rite of confession and absolution that we only get on this day. Maybe you've noticed it, experienced it. It's like three pages long in our bulletin, but it's very long, this very extended rite of repenting of our sins and then receiving absolution, of course. And it's really humbling. It really sets your mind for what the next few days are going to be. And the altar book says, quote, it signals the end of Lenten preparations with the absolution and peace of Christ that stands at the center of these three days. So this is actually kind of a highlight point Hmm. of the Triduum. Hmm. And it's like, yeah, well, it's kind of like, we've arrived, you all the gifts are coming kind of vibe going on, which I really like. And for an extra
2: long three-day service, you need an extra long confession and absolution to kick it off. Exactly.
1: I could totally see that. Another thing that's really different that, that we've mentioned that, I'm, that we've talked about a bunch already on the podcast is the stripping of the altar. So this is a really visceral reminder of Christ's bitter suffering and torture before his death. And it's really hard, at least for me, not to be emotional during this especially as it comes immediately after taking the Lord's Supper. Like Christ feeds us with his gifts and now he's going to go die for us. And we see this, just this like very raw thing happening in front of our eyes. And I mean, I've experienced this, what, 34 times in my life or whatever. Every time it gets me. I cry. Just this very <laughs> visual representation of what's happening. Mm-hmm. The origins of this tradition are likely come from the annual cleaning of the altar in preparation for the Easter feast. So it didn't start as this visceral representation. It started as just the people needing to clean the altar before Easter happened. Hmm. And then after a while, the church was like, oh, there's really great symbolism happening here and we should associate this with Christ's humiliation hmm. and also in a way preparing his body for burial. So now that's, we keep doing it for those reasons, but kind of started for a practical reason, Just very interesting. And did you know that the altar book has very precise details for what is removed In what order? I didn't know that. So there is actually an order to this. If you go to a lot of different churches on Monday Thursday, you may pick that pick up on that. I don't know. This practice is supposed to be done calmly and reverently with dignity and not rushed at all. I didn't look up what that order was. It's probably very long and detailed. But notice, well, wait, this is dropping on Friday next year. Notice (laughs) what order? What order the altar is stripped in? I'm we're recording this before Good Friday, so I'm going to pay attention to that this year. They, and the church is that,
3: do they say why it's in a certain order? Like, is it because stri- obviously you don't want to take the tablecloth off with everything on it unless yeah. you're to practice your mad like your illusionary. Yeah. But like, is it, did you get any sort of information behind why there's an order to it aside from probably that?
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's practical reasons. I, there's probably some symbolism that goes into it as well. Like when you take, when you take the candles and the crucifix and all the things from communion. I didn't get a chance to actually go read an altar book. I don't actually own one. Okay. So maybe that'll be the next podcast. taken nice. into the altar book.
2: I got one upstairs, um, but I, hey. I'm in Connecticut, so yeah.
1: <laughs> so in the services I've attended, and traditionally, I think for a lot of people, Psalm 22 is chanted during the ceremony, yes. which is just part of this stark reminder of what's coming in Christ's journey to the cross. This was also, for me personally, this was First Communion for me after I was confirmed. So we had confirmation on Palm Sunday. And then 13-year-old Sarah got First Communion on Monday, Thursday. So talk oh. about adding another layer mm-hmm. of, Me too, of just meaning. That's really cool. Yeah. Just a whole other layer of meaning on top yeah. of everything. Like We are also taking First Communion on the night that the disciples got the first Lord's Supper. It's just, it's just really cool. The appointed liturgical color for Monday, Thursday is a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure. Not <laughs> green anymore. White, scarlet, or violet. And I think I've experienced all three at one point. I'm not sure I've actually seen white. That was an interesting one. Scarlet and violet, I've definitely experienced. Mm -hmm. I think scarlet most often. Scarlet or violet are appointed for the previous days of Holy Week, so it just kind of makes sense to keep using those. White is appropriate because of the joy we have during the Lord's Supper, and it also marks the separation from the penitential rites of the previous days in Lent and then moving into this season of is like restrain joy as we get closer to Easter. So that's that's an interesting thing. However, if your white parents have the word alleluia on them, probably don't want to use them until Easter. Which I think a lot do. I was going to so say, <laughs> let's be honest, they probably do. Yeah, I think ours might. So that might be why I haven't seen white very often, if at all. <laughs> mm. And then, of course, after the stripping of the altar, we all are somber and quiet and leave the service until the next day. Moving into Good Friday. The name of this day probably originated just from God's Friday, kind of like goodbye originated from god be with you which is kind of like mashed the words together. Of course, we also have the Good Friday explanation of Christ's actions looking horrible to the world and they I mean they were horrible, but also great for us because it's our salvation, right? So, we kind of use that explanation, but it just originated from God's Friday. And this Good Friday terminology seems pretty unique to English language yeah. as well. I love the
2: German name for Good Friday, which is Karfreitag, which mm. is an abri- you know, shortened from Caritas. Oh. Um, you know, that deep, deep love of God for us. And this is the Friday when we show it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the in the Companion to the Services, there was a lot, I don't know how many times that this this thought was in the explanation to the Good Friday Services. Like, this is not Jesus' funeral on Good Friday. Like, that is not what we're doing. It's very somber and everything's black and dark and all of these things. But this is not a funeral. It's remembering and considering the significance of what Christ did for us with this like restrained joy, quote unquote, that kept showing up too. Oh,
2: of like, sorry to interrupt. I'm just good. My dad always told me Karfrahtag was from Caritas. And now I'm hearing it's from the old German Kara, bewail, grieve, mourn. I like my wow. dad's version of the. With the <laughs> definition better. I will continue. different to think of it that way. <laughs> I just wanted to correct myself so that nobody mm-hmm. was like Rachel. You were actually wrong. Rachel. I'm actually.
1: <laughs> yeah. My apologies. Thank you. So way way back, early Christians used the term Pascha, which we generally only use for Easter now. For Good Friday through Easter, seeing all of it together as this fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover, and I I kind of love this way that the old the early Christian church used to view these days. And it was celebrated this way until about the fourth century in Jerusalem when our current practices originated. So prior to the fourth century, the only two major festivals for Christians were Pascha and Pentecost. And Pascha was this longer celebration and it included a 40-hour fast, which is a long fast. That's a very long fast. Yes. There is still in the Orthodox Church specific fasting regimens throughout Lent, and I believe Holy Week has different stuff also. I don't know exactly what that is, but there is a lot more of that ceremony that happens in the Orthodox Church still. The Adoration of the Cross, which we have in our chief service in the altar book, this began around that time too, not necessarily as part of the service. It was more of like a pre-devotion kind of thing, and this practice reached Rome in the 7th or 8th century, and it's in our chief service now too. We aren't like worshiping the cross itself, though I'll get to that in a minute. So people in Jerusalem, when they would do this, they would gather at midday on Friday and they would hear readings from the Psalms, apostles, and Gospels. And then at three o'clock, they would read the Gospel of John about Christ giving up his spirit. And then they'd move to another location to hear about Joseph of Arimathea asking for Jesus' body. A lot of churches don't do chief service at noon. They do traiore at noon or like the, th- the service of three hours. This is not the origin of the traiore service. So I grew up with a traiore service at noon. I didn't know there was such a thing as a chief service that wasn't traiore. <laughs> and I thought that the traiore service was the one that was actually like prescribed, quote, in the book. And it's actually not. It actually still isn't in any of our Lutheran liturgy books. Jesuits in Lima, Peru began this service on the occasion of an earthquake in Lima in 1687. And it was introduced to the Church of England in the 1860s, and then became really common in Anglican and Lutheran churches and some Roman Catholic churches. And a major part of it probably is the seven words from the cross from the gospel accounts. That's how my church did it when I was a kid. We had seven services over the three hours, and each one was based on a word of the cross. I think that's a fairly common way of doing it. The liturgy committee that put together the altar book, they were deciding whether they wanted to put the it like, standardize it a bit and put it in the altar book, but they decided not to since it's a fairly localized service and, I don't know, not everyone does it and it doesn't actually have Lutheran roots. Hmm. It's a fine thing to do. I personally am more of a fan of the chief service now that I've been through it and kind of understand what that service is actually for. But I didn't even know the chief service existed until like <laughs> six years ago, which is just wild <laughs> in my head. So in the Middle Ages, Good Friday began on Thursday evening with tenebrae. And tenebrae just means darkness. And interestingly, this is something that Sean taught me. The tenebrae service happened actually every night before the next day's services. So we only have one tenebrae service. The early church would have had three. So every evening, so Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday evenings, they would have these tenebrae services. So basically, they took in their orders for the day, they have matins and lauds, which were super duper early hours of the morning when it was still dark. So they would just take matins and lauds services of the day. They'd smush them together and move them even earlier and call that their tenebrae service. Obviously, we don't do that anymore. It's at a much more reasonable hour of the day for
0: people (laughs) to go to.
1: (laughs) But that's what they did. The chief service on Good Friday, so their main mass service on Good Friday, would be very meditative, have a lot of the elements that we still have, like the bidding prayer, the adoration of the cross, the reproaches. It also had the pre-sanctified mass, which we obviously don't do. And that was when they took the host that was already sanctified and when you use, use that in their communion service. During the Reformation, Lutherans dropped a lot of these things other than the bidding prayer. And that prayer is when a deacon or assistant reads this bid for the prayer, the subject of the prayer. And then there's silence. There's a lot of silence in the chief service. And then the pastor reads the collect. It's not explicitly about Christ's death, this bidding prayer. So it probably was just a form of a usual church prayer during this time. And also during the Reformation, churches that were influenced by Calvinism started having communion on Good Friday, even though our Lutheran churches didn't. And we'll come back to that one because that's very interesting. In modern American Lutheran churches, we've recovered the reproaches and the adoration of the cross in the chief service. And the adoration, it says, behold the life-giving cross on which was hung the salvation of the world. So we're not actually like worshiping the cross. We're acknowledging that this is how Christ died, the instrument that was used for his death. And then the reproaches in Latin, it's this, oh, my people, what have you done? Is this how you thank your God kind of thing? Uh, Very accusatory language. And then that is put together with this Trisagion from the Greek, Holy Lord God, Holy and Mighty God, Holy and Most Merciful Redeemer. And then we sing in English, Lamb of God, pure and holy. And this pattern is repeated three times. So, this pattern for the reproaches is how the earlier church would do it. They would have the Latin, the Greek, and I get, well, English for us, but those are like representing the languages on the cross. Mm, At least that's, what, that's how Sean. Cool. Explain it to me. So it's kind of cool that, that that actually is this pattern that, that we've recovered from earlier times. There's a lot more about the theology in both of these things, especially the reproaches. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I the love the companion. reproaches.
2: I'm really glad that I we reclaimed know. them. It's a really powerful, powerful moment in the service when you just imagine yeah. why Christ's death was yeah. so needed
1: and the pain. Yeah.
2: yeah. Anyway, it's beautiful.
1: Yeah. Glad we yeah. had it. Chief service is very good for a lot of reasons. (laughs) I love this quote from The Companion about the Good Friday vibe. Quote, though the mood readings and hymns of the day are very moving and may elicit deep emotion and tears, Good Friday is not a funeral for Jesus. (laughs) Good Friday belongs inseparably united with Easter as one Paschal feast. Together they are the summit of our annual journey through the Christian year. I really like that. I don't think I've really thought about it that way before because you know, each of these days kind of has its own service. Mm-hmm. But this idea that Good Friday and Easter are linked together as this full fulfillment of all of the Old Testament thing, all of the prophecies, like he is the full this is the fulfillment of everything. So it's it's all wrapped up together in these days that are kind of smushed together. so logically, of course, the liturgical color for Good Friday is black. The altar is bare from being stripped the night before. There's no invocation or benediction since this this continuation of the service. And there's usually this bare cross that's carried in to the sanctuary during the adoration of the cross. And then it's placed near the altar. And that kind of just sits there for the Good Friday services. In our church, then we move it for Easter vigil and we drape it with white to kind of like show this continuation. And then, of course, at the end of the service again, we all leave in silence. So the question of communing or not communing on Good Friday I grew up with the understanding that, like, you don't commute on Good Friday because Jesus is in the tomb. It's kind of weird. Like, we're, we're meditating on his death. I don't know if that's a great reason. I think my first chief service, I believe, was when we moved to St. Louis. And I came to the noon service. It, was, it said it was the chief service, but in my head it was like, oh, chief service is triore, isn't it? Uh, it's not. So I got to the chief service uh, expecting triore, and it was something totally different with all of these different elements that I wasn't prepared for, and communion, and I was like, "What is happening? I have never had communion on Good Friday. This is interesting." But then, what are you going to do with these extra two hours? <laughs> exactly. Well, it was like an it was almost a two-hour. It's a long service. Yeah, I was like, I was expecting to be there for three hours, and I what anyway. But I really love having. Communion on Good Friday. My personal opinion: I just think it's really cool when we're meditating so much on what Christ has done for us, and then we are fed Him, mm-hmm. like at the altar. It's a very toned-down communion service and chief service. But um, you just
0: strip the altar. How do you? Have
1: yeah, but I the mean, just stripped. So we just we do it with really simple. Like we just have the elements, and I think we have a black veil that goes over it. Hmm. It's a very very simple service. There's there's not a lot of pomp that goes along with it. But that, I mean, that is part of the argument of whether you do or you don't because the altar is stripped. So it's kind of interesting to bring the elements back out. I like it because it, we're, we're in the midst of talking about Jesus' vicarious atonement. Um, So it's like a mind-blowing moment for me. Yeah. It's been a question for a really long time. So when celebrations were united way back before the fourth century in the Pascha Feast communion, they had communion because it was just all one big thing. But then when that separated in the fourth century, There was this question of whether or not we would or would not because of what it meant to be solemn and mournful over our sinful state. The pre-sanctified mass tried to kind of solve that in a weird way where they would do the ceremony on Thursday and then just like have it on Friday. But that was a little weird. So then abstaining from communion to stay in the state of mournfulness is also an accepted thing and actually a little bit more common in Lutheran churches because I think of so. yeah it was actually that the, the Calvinists yeah the the ones that were influenced by Calvinism were the ones that actually had communion
2: that's that's interesting yeah I think that you know when Christ talks about at the Lord's Supper I will this, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in the mm. kingdom there's <laughs> this idea that you know from the end of Monday Thursday till the new kingdom when mm-hmm. he rises from rises from the dead, that it's an appropriate time to abstain from communion. Right. Yet at the same yeah. time, I do like what you say about he is he is here for
1: us. His death mm-hmm. is for us. And mm-hmm.
2: yeah, communion gets that across in a mm-hmm. yeah, very strong way.
1: Yeah. So we approach this with Christian freedom. There are very good reasons to and not to. In Lutheran service book, there are rubrics for both, depending on just what your church's traditions are. If you do it, it's very subdued it's really this, it's quite the ju- juxtaposition of, of this joy and this salvation and still mourning for our sin. So I don't know, it's an interesting thing. I would be curious in the group for all of our listeners, what your church does on Good Friday, if you commune or not, because I, I think that's a, it's a significant thing. I had no idea people even did it. So, mm-hmm. so and then after the chief service, we have the Good Friday Tenebrae service in our Lutheran churches. And this is, I think this is a pretty common service for Good Friday, maybe even more common than going on noon on Friday. I'm not sure. Yeah, because you don't
2: have to, like, get out of work to go to it.
1: Right. Yeah. The Tenebrae Service wasn't actually in any LCMS worship books until Lutheran Service Book, which is a little mind-blowing to me. It's a service that, like, I thought everybody did, but it wasn't actually an appointed service until LSB. Very interesting. So they included it to standardize the service that obviously had become really popular. And, of course, this is the one with the extinguishing of all the candles and the super loud strappatus at the end that freaks me out every time. So the biggest thing in this service is that they move from light to absolute darkness. So in the Middle Ages, they would have 24 candles that they would extinguish. So that was for the 12 prophets and 12 apostles. And they would extinguish one at the beginning of each antiphon and responsory. At this point, it seems that this darkness was signifying the apparent victory over darkness and failure of the divine plan. Really dark stuff. Obviously, we know what happens, but like that was kind of the idea with that continual darkness. Lutheran worship didn't have Tenebrae offered as a service, but the liturgy committee decided to include it in LSB because so many churches were already doing it. Although now, of course, because it wasn't standardized before now, everybody does it differently. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of freedom in how to do this, a lot of flexibility. They didn't really lay it out in a very rigid manner because everybody already has their own traditions. Obviously, the one thing that everybody does, I'm pretty sure, is this extinguishing of the candles. It's based on Vespers which has a very similar format to matins which is what the original way back in the day tenebrae would have been like it would have been like matins. Vespers is super close to the format of matins. And since it's part of the triduum of course everybody enters in silence. No invocation, no opening hymn, we kind of just dive right in. So the number of candles differs among different churches. Traditionally 7 are used for our services. So you extinguish the first 4 after the first 4 psalms mm. and then one after the first portion of the passion reading, one after the completion of the passion reading, and then the last one after the concluding collect. And of course, if you have more candles, you can just add more hymns or more psalms to have more ex- extinguishing points. But in general, the idea is to only have one candle left by the time you get to the prayers, and then you extinguish that one after the concluding collect. So the candles, I like this part, are placed in a, what's called a hearse. I didn't know there was a name for this, <laughs> but it's this it's this triangle frame. We have one of these. It's a it's a triangle frame that, that you put the candles into. And it's usually mounted on its own so that the altar stays bare. So ours is, it stands, I think, at the front of the chancel area, I'm pretty sure. So there's one custom that the liturgy committee did not include, and that is leaving one candle lit at the end of the service and removing it from the congregation.
0: This could be a really
1: confusing practice since the point of Tenebrae is to extinguish all of the light, and then new light is born at Easter Vigil with the fire outside that we're going to get to in a minute. Like, Christ really did, he is dead on Good Friday. Like, there isn't a spark left still burning anywhere. Like, he died. So it's just this kind of confusing practice of, like, is the light still there? Is it not? I'm not really sure. So that's the one thing they were like, you should probably extinguish all of your candles so it's not confusing to people, so that we have this. Recreation happening for Easter Vigil. I need to ask my pastor now because uh, we actually, we, I'm pretty sure we extinguish all the candles that are in the, the hearse. It's a really fun name. I believe, at least I think this is how we've done it in the past. We take the Christ candle still lit and we walk that out of the congregation. But I think we do that because that actually is symbolizing Christ's death. Like yeah. the, the Christ candle that's lit. Is now gone completely. So I, I, don't think we're doing it because of the reason that the liturgy committee said. That's exactly. To not do any,
2: that's exactly how when when Ken led this service every year. That's how he did it. Uh, that the Christ candle would remain lit, but be be walked out of the church, and it would be completely in darkness for yeah. a time, and then right before we left, the Christ candle returned. I think that's the sort of maybe a, a way to keep us from utter and total despair. Mm, yeah, <laughs> he's completely dead. And yet, we are not left as orphans.
0: Yeah, you know, like, yeah. isn't it
3: like after the strepidus? Then, mm-hmm. then it—that's been my—that's always been my experience as well. Like, so you're in darkness. You get the strepidus, The Christ Candle returns.
0: Oh, I like, don't think ours doesn't come silence.
3: back.
1: Yeah, Our ours oh, We live in darkness. <laughs> Interesting. So, huh. despite their
2: desire to uh, standardize the service, it sounds like. Not really. Maybe still, there's, there's co- still some diversity happening out mm. there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm curious what people do because this is a service that that does have a lot of flexibility in it.
3: Yeah. And Sarah, I'm sorry, maybe you said it at the beginning and I just didn't latch on to it. When did this service become I mean, it, it clearly has a lot of, you know, popularity within the LCMS, but it didn't make it into service books until recently. So when did it yeah. become so popular within the LCMS?
1: I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. It's been this, I mean, it's been popular for a long time, but I, I couldn't tell you exactly when. Okay. I'm sure somebody could.
2: I'm not. Some things we don't keep track of, like, you no. know. That's true. One church starts <laughs> doing a service and another church, like, in the same There's circuit, is it. like,
1: let's do this. And that, that's okay. cool. Yeah. Yeah. We may not know. That's, we may not know. Yeah. I'm curious if someone does know. That was not in my research, but I did not
0: research that every. It's beyond
1: the scope of this episode. <laughs> yes. Exactly. (laughs) So with this creeping darkness and tenebrae, it's not that we're necessarily mourning Christ's death, so to speak, like mourning that he's dead, but more that we're repenting of our sins that made Christ's death a necessary reality. So like we're mourning our own sin, but also having this restrained joy in what Christ has done for us and what we know is coming. Like this isn't the end, y'all. So again, without this benediction, but before everyone leaves in silence, in the darkness, you might experience a strepitus, which is actually a recent addition to the service. I don't know exactly when, but I know it's more recent. The congregation can be a little creative in creating this very jarring noise. So the strepitus is that really loud noise that happens at the end of the service. Usually it's like banging a pew, slamming a book shut. We use this really creepy timpani roll, and then someone like stomps down on this false floor we have in our balcony and it like reverberates in the entire church it's terrifying wow even though i know it's coming like it makes me jump I have anxiety
3: time. all day long on good friday because <laughs> now yep.
1: like one
3: second period that i know it's yep. coming i have <laughs> yeah. stress cramps all day
1: long <laughs> no bad. It's terrifying. I mean, it's supposed to be terrifying. Like this whole service has a bit of a bit more pageantry than we have in a lot of other services between Good Friday and Easter Vigil. There's just a lot, a lot that happens outside of the norms of our Lutheran service. Did
3: I, did I tell you guys the story about how one year I was, I was trying to give kids an idea of what to expect with Holy Week. So I was explaining some of the things that they were going to look forward to in the special services. And I described the Good Friday service, how we do it at our church. And then later that week, apparently some kids were telling their mom how excited they were to go to the Good Friday service. She was like, ooh, you're excited. And she was like, yeah, it's going to be dark and then they're gonna smash the bible like no she's like when they smash the bible can we all clap and she's like no it is a very quiet solemn moment (laughs) anyway they were very excited by how i had really talked it up but i might have emphasized more of the drama than the solemnness
1: (laughs) oh no that's really funny
3: well I
2: would say, uh, please don't clap. But if you do scream a little <laughs> bit, that's perfectly
1: natural. Yeah, because I've so- yelped once or twice. We've had some kids scream after the uh-huh. Shepardus in our service. Yeah. Little people. Like the a, way you
3: describe alive. it. Yeah, that's very, it's
1: terrifying. But I, and we like, we take the darkness. It's, it is dark, dark. Like oh, you cannot see. Oh. We don't leave like emergency lights on uh-huh. just in case. Nah, there's nothing. Oh, wow.
2: And yet I think, you know, you, you say maybe I emphasize the drama too much. I don't think we can emphasize the drama too it's much. It's true. Sometimes uh-uh. we get a little complacent and a thing like the strepidus can shock us uh-huh. into realizing once again how amazingly, I don't know, big these events are. Anyway, I'm, I, yeah. I fully support the strepidus. It's an excellent <laughs> practice. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you're right. It, it is. It's shocking, but for a reason. Like the, yeah. we don't do it just just because we like drama. Like there's a reason behind it. Usually, I've been taught that it's the closing of the tomb. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also signify the scourging by the soldiers or the earthquake at Christ's mm-hmm. death. So there's a couple different or the tearing ways of the
2: curtain can. in the temple. Yeah. Or the Tearing of the curtain. Like, that yeah. is what I've heard. Things.
1: Yeah. So it like really seals the deal at the end of Good Friday service, and then we come to Easter Vigil, which is. My favorite of all favorites of church services of the year. We have an entire podcast already on the Easter Vigil that we did with Emmy Wook. So I'm not going to like go into everything, everything, but there is literally 20 pages on this in the companion to the services. So I am going to give you some of the more like historical background stuff. Yeah. It's just the best. (laughs) So the companion describes this service not only is the highest point of the Triduum, but also the highest point of the entire liturgical year. So it's like we're standing on this mountain peak at Vigil and we look back and see how the beginning of the church year in Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, and Lent has led to this moment. And then we're also looking forward to the 50 days of Easter, the days of Pentecost, and the season that follows as we learn to live in Christ. So I think that's Really cool imagery that, like, this is legitimately like the high point of the entire liturgical year because you can kind of see how everything makes sense on this one day. So, vigil has really had a resurgence in recent years, which we'll come back to. But the historical roots of this go way back, like, to the actual Passover, right? So, Passover was the time that the people of Israel gathered in twilight, ate a meal together, awaited the Lord's deliverance in the dark of the night. And Christ is the fulfillment of this Passover. So as we fast forward to the early church, then there's evidence that they kept a vigil the night before Easter, waiting the Lord's resurrection and ultimate deliverance from sin and death and the devil. So this Paschal proclamation, the exultate from Ambrose of Milan, speaks explicitly to these themes. Like this is the night when the people of Israel were delivered from the hands of Pharaoh. This is the night when Christ burst the bonds of death. This is incredibly similar to Easter proclamation in our Easter vigil service when the repeated, this is the night happens. And I absolutely love that part. It's just so good. So it's also a tradition for new believers to be baptized at the vigil service. And we keep this baptismal remembrance in the service. And sometimes we even have baptisms, which is super fun. And during uh, Bishop Augustine's days in the hippo, this baptism part of the service was super significant. There's an entire like three pages on it in the companion about how this service happened with all of these baptisms and all the significance and imagery and things that happened around it. And then these new believers would be brought into the congregation of believers at vigil. So at the beginnings, Easter Vigil was celebrated on Holy Saturday evening leading into Easter Sunday. In the Middle Ages, the Western church began celebrating this Easter Vigil earlier and earlier and earlier on Saturday and it eventually happened that the first Easter Eucharist happened on Saturday morning, which doesn't really make sense in my head. And it wasn't until the mid-20th century that the first divine service of Easter was celebrated at its rightful place on Saturday evening. So that was a long time that Easter Vigil Mass happened on Saturday morning instead of Saturday night. In February 1951, Pope Pius VII issued a decree On the restoration of the solemn paschal vigil that said the Easter vigil would be restored on an experimental basis and it wasn't made permanent until 1955. So interesting to me. So, in Protestant churches, the vigil stopped being celebrated following the Reformation until it was restarted in the 20th century. So, that's several hundred years of not having vigil. So, when we think a lot of you like, don't know what vigil is haven't gone to a vigil like that isn't a weird thing and you shouldn't feel like out of place or anything i love vigil only because i was i experienced it in chicago just kind of on happenstance and so now it's one of my favorite things but i know a lot of people just haven't had that chance because it really is a newer a newer thing that's that's starting to come back into our churches the biggest reason that people moved away from it wasn't really for doctrinal reasons. It was more because of the aversion to the blessing of objects right after the Reformation. And also the Thirty Years' War and those periods of pietism and rationalism didn't really help support the liturgical life of Lutherans like during the 1600s, It started its comeback after World War One when German Lutherans started celebrating it again Thanks to Wilhelm Stellen and the Berneuchten movement. Of course, it has a fancy name. So Wilhelm Stellen was a German Lutheran pastor and one of the main people to bring the liturgical movement to Protestant churches in Germany. So the Berneuchten movement stemmed from the German youth movement. And there is history, of course, that connects some of this to Nazism. That's a whole different thing. I was going to ask that yeah. German youth movement after World War One. that has another name, doesn't it? There is some interesting history. They are not the Brunoisten movement and Nazism are not connected. I will say that. Okay. <laughs> but the German youth movement does have some ties into Nazism. Thank, thank There's, you for clarifying. German Lutheranism at this time in history is just a little weird. It's a whole. It's it, It's a it's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. But Stalin was not a Nazi. He was part of the Confessing Church, which were the people that were against the Nazis. Good guys. So, this, this is a stand-up thing. Nothing weird here. But. The Brnoisten movement did stem from the German youth movement, and that was kind of like a scouting movement. They liked outdoor activity, at least at the beginning. That's, it started in the, early, uh, the late 1800s, too. I thought it was a much later thing. But anyway, this Brneusten movement encouraged a return to liturgical practices in the church in order to give spiritual life a more solid foundation in opposition to this more liberal theology that was emerging after the war. So it met at the Brnoisten Manor, which is why it has this fancy name. And they really put an emphasis on Bible reading, the daily offices, and the celebration of the Eucharist. So after World War I, Stellen was really encouraging Lutherans to begin Easter celebrations on Saturday evening. And this was the beginning of the Easter vigil celebrations among Lutherans. And it seems to have seeped into American Lutheranism after this. I'm not entirely sure when, but it's still not that long ago. Like, that's less than, well, around 100 years ago. I know my childhood church had a vigil, but it wasn't really a huge service. I first experienced it at St. John Wheaton in Illinois. It was amazing. Then we continued it in my church in Chicago. And then when we moved to St. Louis, we helped start the vigil service that we have now. And it was very small to start. I don't know, like 20, 30 people maybe. But we're getting more and more people every year. <laughs> Some churches are
2: like, 20 or 30 is small? What?
1: Yeah, I know. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't It was a huge crowd. But we're starting to get a lot more people and a lot more visitors too. Like people just randomly show up at vigil because there, there really aren't that many churches that do it. Mm-hmm. The vigil has 6 parts, so we've got the service of light, which is fire, the service of readings, and a lot of them, the service of holy baptism, the service of prayers, service of the word, and the service of the sacrament. And I wrote this in my notes, the service of fire, I mean light, <laughs> starts outside starts outside with a bonfire, which is one of the best parts. And then the new paschal candle is prepared for lighting, tracing the alpha and omega, the year, and then you place the nails in it, and then it's processed into the church as a symbol of Christ the light defeating the darkness. So this is kind of the reversal of the Tenebrae service of you're bringing the light into the the church. And then when the singing begins, we start telling the story of the salvation of the Israelites and Jesus as the Paschal Lamb who saves us. The service of readings, quote, exposes us to an abundance of God's word, especially the overall scope of his creation and redemption of sinners. End quote. Abundance is a very good word for this. There are 12 appointed readings, only three are like necessary, and I don't. Most churches that I've been to don't actually do all twelve. I think last year we may have done all twelve. It was very cool, but at the very least, you get creation, flood, and Israel's deliverance at the Red Sea. Like those are the ones you kind of have to do; otherwise, things don't make sense. There's a whole system of how and when to add the other ones because you got to do them in order; otherwise, things don't don't make sense. The full set: you've got creation, the flood, the testing of Abraham, Israel's deliverance at the Red Sea, salvation offered freely to all from Isaiah a new heart and a new spirit from Ezekiel, God's faithfulness to Israel in Deuteronomy, the Valley of Dry Bones, my favorite one, Job confesses the Redeemer, Jonah preaches to Nineveh, the gathering of God's people in Zephaniah, and of course, the fiery furnace with all the satraps and instruments and fun names, and then appropriate canticles or, or psalms are sung in between each of these readings. Then we have the service of baptism, and this is when we celebrate this remembrance of baptism and also... Time for new people to be baptized and brought in. Luther's flood prayer is my personal highlight from this section. I want to read this to you. Almighty and eternal God, according to your strict judgment, you condemned the unbelieving world through the flood. Yet, according to your great mercy, you preserved believing Noah and his family, eight souls in all. You drowned hard hearted Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea, yet led your people, Israel, through the water on dry ground, prefiguring this washing of your holy baptism. Through the baptism in the Jordan of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all waters to be a blessed flood and a lavish washing away of sin. We pray that you would behold name according to your boundless mercy and bless him with the true faith of the Holy Spirit that through this saving flood, all sin in him which has been inherited from Adam and which he himself has committed sins would be drowned and die, etc. But I love that part, though, Instituting all waters to be a blessed flood. Very cool. You might hear this in a regular baptism service too. Oh, yeah. It's
3: part of the liturgy of baptism. It Mm
1: -hmm. is. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, we've got the service of prayer, which follows the model of the litany, focusing on the risen Christ. And then the best part, you've got the Easter proclamation, and all the lights go on, and the bells get rung, and the organ goes crazy, and the altar gets redressed, and we jam out to Easter to the hymn of praise, AKA, this is the feast. It's the best. I think I cry every year. It's just so good because it's the reverse. Like it's here. Easter is here. And then the service of the word is basically a gospel reading and maybe a short sermon, like really short sermon. And then it's right into the service of the sacrament. And the service of the sacrament is pretty much what you'd expect. And it's the highlight, the actual highlight of the service. And then we have like Easter and it's great. So something, I'm just going to quickly wrap this up. I threw a lot of stuff at you. But something that really resonated with me as I was researching all of this is that these three days in our church year are so full of all of the symbolism and these small things in the rites that are really full of theological meaning. Like a lot of this stuff comes from early church that comes from Old Testament prophecies. There's all of these like through lines in our theology that kind of all end in these three days in the Triduum, that like nothing we do in these services is flippant or like just because we feel like it, like every part of these services has this meaning and it's continually pointing us to Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins. And since we're recording this before the Triduum actually happens, I am very much looking forward to it this year because I know all these extra things and I know we'll be in the middle of it when this podcast drops, but I hope you guys are also looking forward to it because it's going to be great. Oh, so much. Yes, definitely.
2: I just want to mention one female connection to all of this research that you did when you were talking about the 4th century Holy Week practices in Jerusalem. It brought back to my mind the source for a lot of that information is the diary of a nun named Agaria, who went on pilgrimage. She was from uh, France or Spain, went on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, spent like a lot of time there and wrote everything down so that her sisters... Back home would be able to understand and sort of experience this pilgrimage vicariously through mm-hmm. her writings, and so the fact that we have this this wonderful early church, very specific liturgical information, is dear due to our dear sister in Christ Agaria, and I I always think that's really cool.
1: Yeah, a lot of what's quoted or a lot of the references in the Companion to the Services are from her notes. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, super cool. Maybe she'll have to be a Storytime episode at some point.
2: Oh, that would be a good one. In the meantime, I'll throw a link to her, a translation of her diary in the show notes. So you can check it out yourself. Awesome.
1: Ladies, I would be very curious in your own church's practices during Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Vigil, if there's anything that your church does that I didn't talk about, or stuff that you really resonate with, or whether or not you have communion. I'd be really curious. You can join us in our Facebook group, the Lutheran Ladies Lounge. Share your thoughts there. You can follow us on Instagram at Lutheran Ladies Lounge. And if you tag us, we'll share your story and our story. You can also sign up for our e-newsletter in the show notes for this episode, or you can send an email to Lutheran. Ladies at KFUO.org. You can find all of our podcasts at KFUO.org slash Lutheran Ladies Lounge or on your favorite podcasting app or on the KFUO radio app. You are listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree.
0: And I'm Rachel. Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies' Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave a review for us too. If you love the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge podcast, consider financially supporting our producer, KFUO Radio, so we can keep doing what we do. Find out how at kfuo.org slash give.